I would now like to introduce the chair for this evening's session, Shelley Ware. Welcome everyone to the Fair Game Illuminate Adelaide Racism in Sport Forum. My name is Shelley Ware and I will be the chairperson tonight. Sorry I couldn't be there in person, but you know COVID, it has different ideas. So I'm very grateful to the Illuminate team who have made this magic happen. I'd also like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land of the Ghana people from which this forum is taking place and also for the traditional owners on the land on which you are listening and learning from tonight. I pay my respects to all elders, past, present and emerging, and I'd like to acknowledge all other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here tonight. So thank you for that beautiful welcome to country and thank you everyone for being here tonight. So let's start by introducing our panel, shall we? I won't go into their long list of accomplishments as we only have an hour and a half together and we will be here all night. We certainly want to hear about their thoughts in racism in sports today and moving forward. We'll start with Bruce Dushite, who is the Director of Football at Adelaide United, a former Socceroo, Oliroo and Junior Socceroo, who is also currently the CEO and of the Committee for Adelaide Leadership. So welcome to you, Bruce. Karen Lee has extensive experience and leadership in social policy and justice reform. She's currently the General Manager of Social Impact and Policy at the Collingwood Football Club. Paul Vandenberg is the experienced program manager who dem with demonstrated history in sports industry and is currently the Diversity Talent Manager at AFL. Tanya Hosh is the first Indigenous person and second woman appointed to the AFL executive team and is currently the Executive General Manager for Inclusion and Social Policy at the AFL. But last but certainly not least, Gavin Wanganing, an AFL legend of the game. He is currently an accomplished contemporary Aboriginal artist about to appear on Survivor this Sunday, so make sure you tune in. So let's get started. And please welcome them all with a round of applause, everyone. So let's get started. I'd like to acknowledge, firstly, the bravery of the panellists, as it's often a personal and often triggering topic to discuss. So thank you all so much for being here. I know it's a take a toll on you, even though it is so important to have these discussions. Kevin, I want to start with you. Um, you've been involved in the AFL at an elite level for the majority of your life. We've seen, you've seen the greats like Adam Goods and Nicky Winmar, and many current day players make a stand up against racism. In your opinion, do you think racism in the sport is the same in your time as you've travelled through? Worse, or do you think it's actually getting better? Yeah, I don't, yeah that's a very good question. Um, I've thought long and hard about it. I think um, what Adam Goods has done uh, in standing up for you know, himself and watching um, and seeing what he had to go through and not actually realising until much later in the piece what was actually happening, um, I think that's an opportunity to create a really important topic and something that we can talk about to educate the, 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 the wider community and also, I guess, the people who haven't educated themselves about Indigenous culture and First Nations people and the trauma that, you know, stolen generation has um, caused, um, displacement of land um, 
and all these you know, hardships that Aboriginal people have faced over the years. So it shines a bit of a spotlight on it, which I think is a positive from a very negative situation. So I think it's, it's taking you know, some steps forward, but I think at times it feels like we're going a step backwards and then a few steps forward. So I just look forward to the day where you know, we make some serious inroads and um, it's a very impactful uh, in education. And I think the rule power sits outside of Aboriginal people. I think it's with the wider community. In my opinion, I think the majority of, of people um, get it. It's just that, can we say minority? I don't know, maybe, I could be wrong, I could, but I think um, they're the ones who need to be educated and called out. So hopefully one day we can get to a place where it is a thing of the past because it shouldn't be about the colour of your skin, your race, it should, people should be treated as individuals and not as a whole. So, yeah, I think a few steps forward, one step back. We've been going for a while now. We certainly have. Thank you. Now, Paul, you've also had a successful career in basketball. Can you share the impacts of being racially vilified and where it takes you as a sports person and then as a person? We're going there already, far out. I thought we were going to warm up to that session. Well, you know, I'm just straight into it. <laughs> um, I don't like to muck around, Paul. Yeah, that's, that's true, I know. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really tough question to answer, actually. Because like, at the time, at the moment, when it has happened, um, it's really hard to deal with. And I was pretty quiet and shy, like most of um, my family are. Um, and so you bury it, and you don't say anything, you don't call it out, particularly probably in the basketball sense too, I, I always felt like I was, not felt like, I was the only Aboriginal person often on the court. When I played in the NBL, I was the only Aboriginal person in the whole league. So I really felt quite isolated. Um, and probably at that stage, without giving away my age, which is a while ago, playing in professional basketball, um, they didn't have the supports in place. We, we didn't talk about cultural awareness training. We didn't talk about well-being uh, and support for players. So back then you're sort of left to your own device, right? So often it was just a, a call to mum, sometimes a hug if I could get that out of her, um, and, and talking with family to get through those sorts of moments. So I think <clears throat> now that I've sort of transitioned out of playing and going off the field and working at the AFL now, I think that's driven me to put policies and procedures and supports in place for players uh, and staff members uh, I guess in my previous role at the Port Adelaide Football Club, but now at the AFL, like working really closely with Tanya and her team about what can we actually put in place to, to make a difference and um, how do we increase Aboriginal participation uh, both internally at the AFL but across the league? How do we create more, um, get more players? How do we create better pathways for players to be drafted, uh, both men and women? Coaches, umpires, so having an impact right across the industry is really a big focus for, for, for us at the AFL. Um, and I think that's just because of the past experiences that we've all had that uh, we probably felt a little bit isolated at the time, but I think we've made some huge inroads as a league, uh, especially AFL. I think the AFL has really led a lot of this space um, and doing some great things, but still, we, Tanya and I will always acknowledge that there's still a long way to go as well in, this, in, in our sport and in our country. Yeah, as much as it pains one to 
actually say those words. There's a long way to go. Now, Bruce, you have had a massive career in soccer. Reflecting on the two questions that I asked and Paul, what are your thoughts on where we are now with racism and the impact it has on, on people? Yeah, look, I was really interested in Gavin's answer. Um, two steps forward, one step back. I think there's a changing landscape as well. So social media, that's the elephant in the room, right, with, with um, racist abuse and the ability of everyday people to be able to connect or send a message directly to um, a sporting superstar or, or whoever it might be, politician, it could be, it could be anyone, someone with a profile. So you look at the Euros and what happened to those three English boys, um, as soon as that penalty was missed, I knew exactly straight away. Straight away, I was like, oh, this guy's going to get smashed. And they're all going to get smashed on social media. You know, and that's why sometimes it does feel like two steps forward, one step back, because, yes, people are calling it out and, you know, people are discussing it in open forums now. But on the flip side, the, the dark side of it is more prevalent. Well, it seems more prevalent because it's so much more easily accessible, right? It's, it's, it's very easy to jump on Instagram and, and tweet to Rashford or tweet to Saka. So um, it does feel a bit like that, but I, I'd say it's a changing landscape. Um, education is definitely a big part of it. But also, I think some of these, some of the most powerful organisations in the world, your Facebooks, you know, um, your Twitters, they've got to do something about the policies that they have. You know, how is it that these organisations have some of the most powerful computers, most powerful algorithms, know you better than you know yourself, know how to sell you something before you even realise you needed it, <laughs> but don't have the capability to stop someone filming a massacre in New Zealand, which we saw a few years back, or racist remarks, racist emojis. Um, how, how can you not be able to, to, to they take them down uh, after a while? Someone's got to complain, a few people got to complain, you know, it's abusive, it's, it's, you know, it's racist or whatever, and they, they might take it down. But I think, you know, we're, we're in an evolving situation and racism is prevalent, that's clear. Um, and we can do everything we can, but it'd be really helpful if some of these huge organisations also played their, their part as well. Now, touching on that, Ted, doing some brilliant work and working hard in this space. Can you let everyone know what is actually happening in the work that you're doing in AFL with social media and racism? Is that, sorry, was that me, Shelley? Yeah, sorry. Yes. Um, yeah, so, yeah, following on from where Bruce um, left off there, when I arrived at the AFL in 2016, I started to realise that a lot of the abuse that was taking place um, was online. You know, when Michael Long, Shay Cockatoo Collins, Gilbert McCadden, um, Michael McLean um, worked with the late Tony Peake at the AFL to say enough's enough in relation to the racism that was happening on field. The AFL developed one of the first religious and racial vilification policies of any sporting code in the world. 
and it has been incredibly successful in terms of dealing with racial vilification on field at the elite level of the game. Really successful. Um, I'm nearly five seasons in at the AFL, because we talk about seasons, not years, and um, there's been very, very few um, accounts made of vilification on field at the elite level of the, level of the men's or the women's game. Community level footy is completely different. It's, um, there's way too many incidents still, and um, yeah, mm. we're dealing with those constantly. Now, what I discovered in looking at um, the research that had been done in relation to the effectiveness of what was then called the peak rule, I mean, rule 35, which we now call the peak rule after a review of the policy um, in the last couple of years, is that um, the social media stuff just wasn't around when the policy was developed. So certainly, you know, most sporting organisations will have some degree of a commercial relationship with social media and digital platforms, because we have to. So it's quite interesting when you start to unpack how these sort of quite codependent relationships exist, because obviously social media, social media is fabulous for a whole range of us in communicating with each other, but there's no firm lines in the ground about when people overstep. So we started having conversations with um, social media people. Uh, it was difficult originally because there was a commercial imperative and here I am in the social policy back blocks of the AFL wanting to have some conversations. Um, I now sit on the hate speech advisory group for Facebook and also their Aboriginal affairs group. Now, the reason I decided to do that was because it just gave me more opportunities to lobby them. At the same time, we definitely reached out um, to government to see, OK, well, what are we going to do? In Australia, we've got something called the eSafety Commissioner, which is held by Julie Inman Grant. And I went and introduced myself to her and we started having conversations. Then in late 2019, the federal government announced that they were going to do a review into the eSafety Commissioner's um, powers and we were very quick to put in a submission, really wanting her powers to be expanded to include adults because her position was originally set up to deal with um, bullying of children and potential grooming of children online. Um, so recently, after a lot of work and a lot of lobbying by a lot of people, um, it's only been in the last month that the federal parliament has passed um, new legislation that expands the powers of the eSafety Commissioner, um, where she will actually be able to force social media platforms to remove harmful material, whether it's towards a young person or an adult. Um, and that will include sexism, homophobia and racism. Um, to name a few, and she'll be able to force them to take that material down in 24 hours. Now, that's not as far as that needs to go, but it is a step in the right direction. Um, and what we've found is by joining up with the eSafety Commissioner, and we've got a lot more work to do yet, um, okay. she's able to leverage her relationships with those digital platform giants and hopefully we'll see an increase in their preparedness to be responsive. 
Um, they definitely made some announcements in April around Instagram, because Facebook own Instagram as well, and there are now settings that you can put on your platform which will help you to um, sieve out abusive, racist um, posts on your, uh, on your accounts, put them in another um, folder, which you can access if you choose to, and then report those incidents, or um, you can just choose never to look at that stuff at all. But again, that's only part of what needs to happen. So, look, I mean, I was really pleased about the expanding of the legislation. I followed it very carefully. Um, I was really pleased it happened. But I think, as we all know, and as Bruce just said, they're incredibly powerful. And what we do have to remember is that it is harmful. And sometimes that harm has massive, massive consequences. It's not consequence-free. It's not just name-calling. Some of the stuff that we've seen on some of the players' accounts, because their team lost or the player decided to transfer to another club, you would not believe the hateful, vile, nasty stuff that people can post, and often doing it through fabricated accounts. That's the other thing with Instagram. Um, with the new settings, um, it's much harder for people to continue to create new anonymous accounts. So that's the other reason why it's really important to report this stuff when it happens. I think we all need to flood these companies with the reporting. We need to keep letting them know that we're not happy with it. Just as our supporters do when they come to games and decide to report antisocial behaviour in the crowds. Because if we don't want to hear it, we need to make sure that the people that facilitate it hear that we're not prepared to cop it anymore. Absolutely. And it's not just the person who's being racially vilified. It's really important for people who for allies to actually report this as well and make sure that this happens. So well done on the work on there, right with you on that one, making those changes there. It's been fantastic to see. So Taryn, is sport the great equaliser that Australians like to tell themselves that it is? What are your thoughts on that? Is it the great equaliser? Um, I think it has the... I'm not sure if equaliser is the... Um, does it have the power to change? I, I think I think so, a a absolutely. And you know, unlike um, the the rest of my colleagues up here, I don't have a, a background in sport like um, like everyone here. Uh, but I I definitely think that it does because of the people following and 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 the passion. Um, and in the same way, you know that um, the power of social media, it only has the power because of the people. Um, so mm -hmm. like in the UK with social media and what they're doing with racism now, um, you know, the whole, the Players Association, it's not just the players that are having to stand up against the racism. It's not the people, it's not us as people of colour and blackfellas that now have to stand up and say, I'm feeling hurt, I'm experiencing and absorbing all of that, the harm and the hate. Now, you know, I think this week's experience with soccer is that, you know, those young boys are playing soccer and the whole, you know, Prince William is saying that's no good, 
you know, the Players Association are saying no. Um, Boris Johnson is saying, you know, is pushing back. Like, and I think it's that kind of pressure on social media within the sport. And it's sport that gets everybody's attention, those people's attention, that changes, um, that makes the changes for good. So, yes, I, I do think that, you know, when people, you know, people often say there's that saying, hey, Shelley, you know, like sport, you know, the power of good. Like, I, I do, I do believe, believe in that, but I do think we do have a long way to go. Yeah, we sure do. Now, Bruce, everyone has touched on what happened in soccer. It was pretty disgraceful what happened in the media and what also happened in the social media setting as well. The issue being that there isn't a lot of diversity of people in colour, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people on boards, managers, referees. What do you think needs to happen to the systems in place to better protect the players and fans from vilification here in Australia? I think consequences need to be harsher. Um, I think that sports operate on their own patch. Um, you've got the AFL, you've got Football Australia, you've got netball, you've got basketball, you've got all these different associations. But I think if they did all come together on this particular issue, um, it would be far greater reaching. I think that they could make a really significant change they can apply an extreme amount of pressure on those social media organisations. You cannot be a commercial sporting organisation, federation, football club or team without social media. And likewise, those social media organisations are really keen to have all the teams and all the star players on their platforms because that gets more likes, that gets more retweets, that gets more hits, um, that makes their platform more relevant as well. So I find it disappointing and, and quite strange actually that you, know, you don't see more black people as coaches. You don't see, you know, we, we've got the playing stuff down pat. We've got heaps of you know, players from diverse backgrounds, but that seems to be sort of where it stops. You know, there's, there's, there's not many in executive positions, there's not many on boards, there's not many in the, the medical and high performance teams, there's not many in sports administration. So outside of playing the game, there's very few uh, people from, of, of colour, if you like, just like there's very few women, if I'm honest. So it's, it's, it's the same uh, uh, sort of barriers. Oh, <laughs> I'm a bit too young to know how the structures were built or how it got to be that way, but what I do find in, in a positive light is the rate of change in today's society. You know, humans like to think of things in a linear way. We were here yesterday, we'll be here tomorrow, we'll be here the next day. Whereas you can actually get an exponential curve on change, right? A couple of years ago, it was just Adam Goods by himself, right? Now there's a whole movement and it's, and, and it's, it's coming to the fore, it's come to the fore quicker, it's staying relevant and more and more people are turning their minds to it. So 
The positive is I think change will be much quicker. You know, if it took us hundreds of years to get where we are today, it might only be two or three more years to get where we need to be. It can actually be that, that quick. Um, but I'm, I'm, I was always interested in, in, into the why. You know, what can we do and, and why is it that there isn't more people of colour outside of playing whatever game it, it, it might be? And, and it's, I'm not one to support parachuting someone on a board because that doesn't really make a difference either. They really need to be entrenched in everything. They need to be the players. They need to be the doctors. They need to be the physios. They need to be the general managers. They need to be the commercial managers, the CEOs. Once you start to get in and amongst the ecosystem completely, then I think racism really starts to die back because at every touch point, any gremlins that might be creeping out are getting shut down. Whereas at the moment, you know, star player gets abused, people get up in arms, right? Um, but that could be happening in an office and no one's really saying too much about it. So, you know, if, if, if we were entrenched in and amongst the ecosystem of, of social media, the sporting teams and, and the like, it would really change. And, you know, a good example is what Channel 7 tweeted after the game, if anyone saw that, about, you know, three black players <laughs> fail. <laughs> like, that is someone in an organisation with no idea. That, I, I, I cannot believe that they were tweeting on the 7 News Twitter uh, handle thinking, I'm going to tweet a racist comment. They, they, I, I'd like to believe they had no idea what they were tweeting. But they actually thought that that's was okay, problem. and that's the problem. Mm. Yeah, it sure is. It was, uh, it was just took your breath away. Now, Paulie, you saw that tweet and you shared it as well, Paulie. I called you Paul before, nearly fell off my chair. Um, <laughs> your, it was hideous to see that that could happen here, and we say over and over again the year that we're in, 2021. You know, how could this be happening in 21? But it continues to happen. And I'm really thrilled that you're at AFL House in the role that you're doing. Tell me about the role you're doing and the changes you hope to implement. Yeah, it's probably just back to the, my earlier point. I think, um, and to what Bruce is saying, um, is how do we create better pathway? We're not, when we talk about adding diversity or people of colour into the industry, it's not, we don't want 20, 25, 30. Let's just have people coming into those different roles, whether it's from the ground up, um, Tanya being on the senior exec, okay, that's one, can we have two, right? Um, head of, head of, a, of a program, head of diversity or head of something, can we have, an, you know, someone of diverse background sitting in those roles? Um, when we're talking about players getting drafted into, the, into teams, it's not like we want to take over the whole team. You know, we just want to create pathways that actually just allows our young kids and young people, one, to believe that they can get drafted, because we know we've got the talent, right? But there's still this stereotype, there's still this stigma that's attached to a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, um, whether our backgrounds are different to, to yours, or whether our backgrounds are different to the recruiters, plays a, rig, a big important part. Whether our kids live with our grandparents is kind of a big issue for recruiters and clubs for some reason, that a lot of our kids live with their grandparents, which is really common for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So how do we start to, you know, and I don't always like to use the word educate, 
um, but how do you influence the recruiters, the GMs of football, the CEOs, the boards, about the things that we do a little bit different, the way that we live that is a little bit different, right? And I always talk about clubs using our culture to create a bond, right? How do, how do we open ourselves up as well to create meaningful relationships and a bond by using our culture to help with that? Because at the end of the day, our culture is your culture. And I always feel like in Australia, often growing up, I didn't feel like Australia is proud of our culture. So how do we change that mindset? It's about you guys coming on a journey with us. It's about you guys coming out onto country, coming out to remote communities, seeing the challenges that some of our people face, right? Or the lack of access to services, right? So how do we have an impact there? But how do we bring that back? And back to Gavin's point earlier, we can't do this alone. There's only 3% of us. So we need you. We need, we need our non-Aboriginal people, our non-Aboriginal brothers and sisters to help fight this fight. That's what we always talk about. And if you even take it to a South Australian point of view, there's only 42,000 of us here. So visually, if you picture that, I always picture it as, well, we couldn't even feel Adelaide Oval. So how, do we, how are we still in this position where there's a gap that exists, whether it's through education or health um, or access to services or being drafted? We still, we've got a big body of work that we've been doing to that's identified that from an Aboriginal kid being drafted into the AFL, there's a 350-hour gap of personal development compared to a non-Aboriginal kid that gets drafted. So our kids that are getting drafted today is remarkable. Without any support, any personal development, any guidance, any mentoring, living in poverty, living in a house that probably has 12 people, that's the average occupancy rate for Aboriginal households in Australia, 12. So thinking about the strain that that all causes, and these young people are still getting drafted. We still make up 10% of the AFL. We make up 6% in the AFLW space. So we over-index in that space. Just imagine if we were able to solve some of the issues around services, or reducing overcrowding, or having better access to education and, and schooling, right? Um, and then on top of that, Shell, is if you don't get drafted, well, how do we get you to university? How do we get you to tertiary education? Because we know if we can get Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander young people into university and getting a degree, a degree, then there is no gap. But the bottom line for me is, how can you help us and help fight the fight? That's, that's what it comes down to for me. I hope people today that are listening hear what you're all saying and actually can think about the role that they can play in that. But I've been in the space of AFL media for 20 years and I've seen, you know, the drafts every year. We have the drafts poorly. Are you going to be making a difference into what the colour of that draft might look like? It still feels like there is a huge reluctance and a fear to take kids from remote communities and they use it as an excuse. This is how I personally feel. What, in your space that you're working in, is that something you're working on as well in the pathway? You, you, yeah. I better be careful here. We only, Tanya, Tanya, well, Tanya and I just had this conversation about uh, a young Aboriginal kid last week told us he didn't get drafted from Northern Territory, he's from a remote, remote community. Um, mm. And he's got some examples of, from five clubs, recruiters and GMs of football on the question they asked him at the combine, which is the draft where you, they, the clubs interview you. 
And if I told you the question they asked this young man, you, you would fall off your seat. And this is, the, this, is, this is what we're trying to change, is the attitude of, is he a high risk person because he comes from regional remote communities, right? Is he high risk just because he's Aboriginal and he has those challenges that I talked about? So I have already spent two, two sessions with the recruiters. Um, right. They still need more. Um, and then that, come, that brings into our diversity program. So we, we've got a range of diverse programs for multicultural and Indigenous young people. So how do we elevate that, though? How do we elevate those young people? Because a lot of those kids are slipping through the gaps after those diversity championships and the programs, and they're not going into their state teams and they're not getting drafted. And we know the talent that they bring. But the influence that we have to do at the moment is, is, is pretty big, and we're going to have to spend a, bit more, a lot more time in that space. It is, and I'm very grateful the work that you're actually doing, because, like you said, there's kids up there that are being told they're going to be drafted, and it comes to draft, and it doesn't happen. Their name's not called. So it's heartbreaking for these kids. Now, now Gav, I believe your son, unfortunately, has faced some racism in his school sporting career. Can you tell us about his experience and did the systems in place support him to get through this? Yeah, so when I mentioned earlier about, um, you know, we making progress, two steps forward, one step back, well, here's a bit of an example that's example that is quite fresh in my own family with my own son. So only, was it two, two years ago, two and a half years ago, my son Tex, he's almost 18 now, so he, he was in year 10. And he was playing footy on the, the, the hallowed St. Peter's football oval against St. Pe uh, Peter's uh, in the year 10 in their grand final against St. Peter's. He was at PAC at the time and he made a, a tackle, a nice strong hard tackle and the guy who he tackled got up and called him a filthy abbo. You know, so, and I thought, wow, gee, really? Um, and then automatically I start thinking back to my mum's hard, hardships in, in growing up and my grandfather and my great-grandfather and how they had to have a, you know, like a note to say that they could leave their home and go to the shop or go to the pub or, or, or work. And then, you know, like almost 100 years, you know, 80, 90, 100 years later, my you know, son is being called, you know, being discriminated, racially abused, and I was just like dumbfounded. So I think that just stares us all in the face to say, well, yep, there's still work to be done and, it, and it's still happening and is it coming, you know, from their parents? Um, I hope it's a minority. Uh, hopefully it's a, it's a rare, rare thing. Only, it was the only comment on the, on the day. But the great thing that I saw was from his own teammates who supported him, his non-Indigenous teammates who he loves and they love him, that they went into bat to, you know, confront the opposition and the umpire and, you know, all these things... But the other comment that, that sort of confused me or concerned me was from the umpire, and he, he made the comment back to some of the players who were complaining or trying to say, hey, he was racially abused. He said, well, well you're all calling each other names, so just stop it. It's like, wow, you know, that's coming from, the, you know, the umpire who's got the power of the game. So anyway, so we, my wife Pippa, she was helping me instigate a bit of a, a call to the the principals and to, you know, the most powerful schools in South Australia to, to discuss what happened and what are they going to do about it and going forward that they need to put a process in place that every single person 
you know, from, from the umpire to the coach to whoever, they need to understand this process. And if, if it does happen again, the process is in place is, oh, well, this person is ejected for the rest of the game. He's off. No questions asked. Deal with it later. You know, the, um, and lucky enough, and to, to their credit, the schools got together and asked the young lad from, from Saints to, to make his way over to PAC to, to speak to Tex and apologise to him in person, which I think was a, a really good thing and a, an educational thing for the young lad who made the mistake. So hopefully that's something that he will um, use to, to better himself in, in that aspect and hopefully he can, um, you know, make a difference going forward. But, yeah, so that's just a little, little story I thought I'd share, which I, I think will probably, yeah, raise your eyebrows. Mm, yes. So how did Tex feel when he got that apology? And, yeah. What, that's, what in him? That's the other thing. So... I think we'd, I'm lucky, Tex is lucky that he has the support of myself, you know, people in a strong family where he's strong in his identity and he, he's fortunate enough to go to a school where he's being educated um, and he's doing really well. But on the flip side, if it actually happened to a more vulnerable, vulnerable Indigenous community lad who's come down from the community who doesn't have those support mechanisms in place, we could be looking at something more serious here in terms of impact and consequences, which Tanya you know, mentioned earlier. It could lead to depression, suicide. You know, a lot of suicides in Aboriginal families. I've seen it myself firsthand. There's been, I've witnessed three suicides as a kid. So it's just, yeah, lucky that, you know, we had a good yarn with Tex to see how he was feeling. And obviously deep down he was, he was upset and he still would be, but we're just lucky that um, he's got our support. Yeah, he is lucky. Lucky to have your love and support, that's for sure. I recently had someone reach out to me after 25 years of being quite disgustingly racist to me as a, as a young woman. Uh, so I'm giving my age away now, Paulie. So, so racist towards me. Um, but they reached out to me on socials and apologised. And there was real power in that apology because it was really sincere. And they spoke about how the Black Lives Matter movement had really really raise an awareness within them and the difference that it had made to them as a person. So, you know, it's it's never too late to apologise. It's never too late to be a part of that healing process, as long as there's, of course, sincerity um, through it. Tanya, you recently know that um, a lot of people have been, and you touched on it also, that there's a lot of racism in community and second tier um, football. And, and recently, I have no idea why, but there's been a lot of reports to myself about this racism that's been going on and a lot of people um, questioning the systems that are in place. And I know when you released the racial vilification rule 35, which is now the peak rule after that beautiful man, um, and you said that you were going to review the current systems and when someone is racially vilified and also have an ambassador program and an education program. I'm just wondering where the AFL is at with that and what we can expect all of that to look like. Yes, yeah, Shelley. So um, when we did the review uh, led by Dr Sean Gorman in our team, um, we, we did, um, of course, uncover uh, numerous stories of um, racial abuse in particular, but not only racial abuse, community football level. Um, and community football 
is a completely different environment to the elite game. It's run by volunteers, people who feel really passionately about their club. It's often held through the same families, generation after generation, and people put a lot of time and love in at that level. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're equipped to deal with these sorts of incidents. And historically in footy, um, particularly after Michael Long really uh, shone a, a light on the incident between himself and Damien Monkhurst, um, the, the emphasis was around mediation. And what we've come to realise through the review work is that mediation often doesn't work and people have lost faith in that approach and so they don't report because they're not confident and often the interactions and the relationships that will exist in a sporting club environment um, does involve all sorts of sort of deep historical bonds that become quite difficult to navigate when you have to challenge each other about behaviour. And I think more often than not, people just want the problem to go away so they don't have to deal with it and risk the fallout from holding people to account. So um, we're in the process of developing an implementation plan. There are numerous, numerous recommendations across six different pillars in relation to that review. So what we do know is that we've got to make sure, and this is one of the things I have really learnt from working with people since I've been at the AFL, is that you've got to, if you're going to um, build the right sort of infrastructure from a policy perspective, from a social interaction perspective, you've got to make sure that you're building it on a strong foundation. So you have to make sure that you do things in the right order. Um, for us, I'm still so incredibly grateful that in 2019 we were confronted with the final quarter and the Australian Dream documentaries that really, you know, made us have to look back at what Adam Goods survived. Mm. Um, because I'm not sure how successful we could have been in developing, um, you know, appropriate frameworks and responses to all forms of vilification in our code until we'd apologised to Adam Goods. And so even though that apology came late, it was still really important. And there's now a lot more infrastructure around, through both of those films, community education guides, um, where those clubs can really start using those resources to help themselves get better. So the rollout of that, Shelley, um, is still being worked through. Obviously, COVID has not helped um, our scaling up of the response. Um, but what I am pleased, and I was talking to Bruce about it before we started, just as you've experienced an increase of reporting to you, so have I, so have other colleagues, I know Paulie has, and I see that as a very positive sign because what that tells me is that people want us to put more attention into this and they're prepared to trust us to try and help resolve it. So, you know, quite often, um, when you review a policy and the complaints go up, people think, oh, see, I told you it was shit um, out there and it was all hopeless. But actually, more reporting is a very positive sign because if we like to think it's not out there as much as we think, we're kidding ourselves. Um, mm -hmm. There are so many different forms of vilification. I mean, just think what it's like for Indigenous women playing AFLW. 
you know, they've got mm -hmm. the sexism to deal with and the racism to deal with for people who are same-sex attracted in sport. There is an intersection of vilification now that is becoming more and more rampant. And I do agree that um, we do need the codes to work more collaboratively. I certainly have strong working relationships with my counterparts in tennis, cricket, um, Football Federation of Australia and NRL and we meet on a regular basis to discuss what is going on in our codes and sometimes we're saying I'm glad that one's with you brother and not with me. Um, but the, the other thing I would say is that I am absolutely convinced that we need more people of colour and Indigenous people in decision making um, at board levels and I would parachute them into the board yeah. as long as they've got the credentials to hold their own at the governance table and there's mm -hmm. plenty of people that do now um, that makes all the difference because I tell you what sporting clubs have got their hands out for Indigenous funding to run this program and that program and in reconciliation week go yay Aborigine and then the rest of the year they're, they're turning away from some of the most challenging issues that we have systemically in place. But rest assured, um, Shirley, our resolve on this issue is incredibly strong, but we do have to build the right infrastructure because it can't just be a moment, we need to build a movement. Absolutely agree. The infrastructure has to be strong and there's lots of kids waiting there. So look forward to your work and your hard work and getting that, that those systems in place so they are better protected because you're right, mediation just isn't working. Kids aren't reporting. And there are also, there are so many issues that are happening in that situation. But Taryn, I'm interested to hear from you about what you think needs to be changed in the systems and what needs to happen to protect us from racism in sport and to deliver long-term change. Um, I feel a little bit shocked by um Gavin's story. Not that, like, I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe it happened to a 17-year-old. Like, I didn't know that that occurred. But I think I'm shocked because it happened to your son, Gavin. Um, and, um, and I think it's that what I find incredibly jarring is that we're still having the conversation you know, that an umpire is saying, well, everyone's talking rubbish to each other on, on the field, and what's the difference between saying you're a filthy black, you know, avo at, compared to you can't kick a footy? Like, they're not the same. And, you know, because clearly that man has not been educated about our parents and our grandparents and what it was like to be given a ticket, to be given freedoms and to not have lived, you know, a civilised life in this country. Um, and you know, the, the accountability for this behaviour and the education around all of this, it's just, they're the systems and the structures, like we've had anti-discrimination laws since 1975. People are clearly not using them, and you're saying, Shelley, that they're not effective. I actually agree with you. Um, so we need law reform, you know, and obviously, and more muscle in other, in emerging areas, like online, um, 
and power of the people to, to, do, to do that. But, and education, and I feel like I'm just saying the same stuff that we always say. Um, like when, are, when is the education system going to get serious about teaching our kids and the new generation? I don't know. I don't know if there's much hope for that fella who's, you know, umpiring. Um, but you know, there is hope for all of the kids. Um, and I think, and I don't want to. Um, you know, the, I feel hopeful about the work, you know, structural change needs to occur in the systems where, and the organisations like Collingwood at the AFL, you know, education, law, blah, um, you know, and I think that starts with identifying the places where the problems are, like Collingwood. They've kind of said, okay, we get it. We've got this long history of all of these incidences where people have experienced racism. They kind of put their hand up and said, okay, here's the line in the sand. Did an independent review by really credible um, academics in the space. Um, and kind of stood back and received those recommendations, have, have accepted them, and are now have invested in undertaking that reform. And I think that's where we need to get to alongside the kind of, the, the kind of social m movement that is happening that's creating this social change that will lead to the responsibility and accountability that follows. Karen, your work at the club at Collingwood, what changes have you seen at the club since? And the anti-racism advisory group was established, or since that anti-racism advisory group was established, and I know, Tanya, you're working on that as well. Do you think the efforts are filtering into other clubs? Sorry, that, that, that it'll go into other clubs? So do you think, have you seen, what changes have you seen at Collingwood? And have you seen those changes, have you seen other clubs react? what's happening at Collingwood and have you seen those changes there? Yeah, I can't really, um, I can't really speak for the other clubs because I don't, that I don't have any visibility okay. into, into those, but I can definitely speak for, Colling, for Collingwood, I guess, and the changes. And I think, yes, but it's going to take time and, and it's slow. Um, I, I think the fact that, you know, not only did Collingwood say, yes, I've got a problem and yes, we need to fix it and, you know, it's not like IBAC, which is the Integrity Commission in Victoria, sorry, in Adelaide, um, where <laughs> they, you know, uh, police commission where they um, deal with their own police complaints. Um, I think what's amazing about the expert group in into um, racism at Collingwood is that they say, well, we don't have the expertise and the knowledge to deal with um, th this reform agenda, so we're going to bring in those experts, and they work directly to, to the board. Um, and where they're, we've taken, un undertaken, you know, a values work to kind of with the organisation, so you know, talking about the change, Shelley, 
um, reviewed the policies to make it clear so that when someone does experience racism and th there is a there's a multitude of avenues that you can, you know, when you're playing footy, if you're at the club, if you're attending the football, if you are online, it's not, it's, it's actually, you can just get exhausted trying to work out what to do when you have it, when you're experiencing, you, they don't make, it's not easy. So, you know, um, trying to make, be proactive about that accountability piece and what to do and not, um, which, you know, Collingwood has been criticised for, um, been proactive about that. So there's some, some of the changes and they really do have uh, an army of, you know, of willing um, people who are committed to change. And, you know, I've definitely seen that in, in the playing group, you know, that who just, I honestly believe that they would just n never um, play on the grass again if an Adam Goods incident happened. Yeah. And I'm not making would... that up, that's what they've said. Yeah, that's true. I've heard that from many players that they're... And, and I think the problem with what happened with Adam Goods but I'll, I'll, um, is that a lot of players didn't actually know it was happening at the time. Because, you know, when you're in the AFL, you aren't just sent the whole game and you don't watch every single game. They sent very small snippets of play of what's happening. So there was a lot that was missed within the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander players. They didn't understand to the level until afterwards when they were sitting at a... Um, Indigenous camp together and Paula you know about that moment don't you when they actually that moment of realisation about what happened to Adam Goods you were there when the players were talking is that right? Yeah Tanya, Tanya and I were there that was um you both were there yeah yeah it was pretty emotional for everyone particularly Adam's brother Brett who was sitting there he was just sobbing the whole the whole doco and then you know people like Shawnee Burgon and Eddie Betts the sort of the older ones they were just tears were just flowing. It was just, uh, it was incredibly sad and emotional for everyone. And I think everyone was sad for Adam, but I think at that point it was the line in the sand for all the Indigenous players, particularly just to say enough's enough. Um, and there was a sense of, man, we did nothing for him. Mm. So not only did non-Aboriginal people sort of didn't do anything, we as Aboriginal people didn't do anything for Adam. And that was the biggest take for us. And and, and whether being at an AFL club, often when we got abuse for, from our players, the, the media manager sort of goes into, well, let's just not say anything, because if you say something, you're going to draw attention. But that moment was like, nah, we're just going to call it out and call it out and call it out, and we're just going to be a big support for each other. Um, and, they, and that's, how they've, that's how they've sort of behaved in the last sort of four or five years is, 11% of the league just get together and they just, so when one, one cops it, they all jump on and just call it all out. And that's, that's, I feel like that's been pretty effective. I think a part of the shameful part and the hurtful part of, you know, that moment was that it, Adam was alone, right? And, and that's the learning and the journey as well that, you know, we, um, for that not to happen, for that not to happen again. So, Tanya, the situation with Collingwood last year, following on from Adam Goods, sort of raises the question about how far we've come, but also I want to know from you, what have we learnt from Adam Goods? 
Um, when you say we, do you mean the AFL? Or oh, the AFL. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not the AFL, but thanks. No, yeah. we as in the people, the AFL learn, and also what has society learned from Adam Goods? Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's a very good question. I think, you know, certainly it was quite a revolutionary process we went through in 2019 when the films came out because um, my team and I, we were we were the ones tasked with making sure that every single playing group watched the documentaries, um, every coach, um, umpires, all the club CEOs, all the club presidents, the AFL commission, and we took a facilitated process. So we didn't just, you know, send everyone a link and say, watch this. We facilitated those meetings and had those discussions and debriefs with players. Now, the interesting thing is, like, seriously, you have no idea how hard it is to get the time of a playing group in footy. Like, it is next to impossible. Now, for those of you who work in clubs, like Taryn is and Paulie has, and, you know, Gavin, I guess, as a former player and on a club board, you know, it may not seem like that for you, but when the AFL comes knocking, like, the clubs don't like us, right, because we're the regulator, so we're not the ones with the fans. Let's be really clear. Um, so it, it's not always easy. But what was great was there was a real willingness. And it was interesting because I arrived in 2016. It was really hard to get anyone to talk to me about what had happened with the Adam situation. It was really hard to get anyone to say, well, what, you know, because I wanted to know what was going on in here. Like, what were you doing? Like, who, who, was, who was in charge? Like, who was, who was leading the conversations? I, you know, the, yeah, I was, you know, tumbleweed, nothing. So um, when the documentaries came out, you, you had to look at it, you couldn't look away. And they were just such amazing documentation of what had happened in chronological order, particularly with the final quarter. And all of a sudden you realised, and the players could see, as Paulie was saying, he was booed at for 17 weeks in a row. Imagine being in the middle of a huge oval with anywhere from between 50 and 100,000 people looking at you when you're being booed at by tens of thousands of people. Can you imagine that? And if you can't, imagine how you would feel as a parent if that happened to your child. And when you started to think about it like that, mm -hmm. then all of a sudden, you know, I, I was in rooms with the people who broadcast our game when we made them sit down and watch it together. And I saw pennies dropping and a new realisation because I think, and this is one of the things that I think has been so great out of, I think, um, one of the key learnings, Shelley, which has been reinforced by the work that's come out of the Do Better report at Collingwood. In an age of perpetual outrage, where a single incident of racism will get up in arms about it and will we'll tweet our disdain and will get really angry with our friends and will feel really good because we're morally correct. But mm -hmm. then we do nothing about the systemic racism that enables that behaviour in the first place. And I think that is what has been learnt, that the system enabled the failure of Adam Goods as much as the individuals who could have done something. The system enabled it to continue 
for 17 weeks in a row. And what the Collingwood report has shown is that it's the systemic issues that enable the behaviour in the first place. And that is where I really feel quite compelled that we need to concentrate. And they're the conversations. Like, be outraged about Eddie Maguire if you want to. You know, for me, it's just like, Eddie is Eddie's issue. Like, he's just one person. Sure, he had a lot of power and all of those sorts of things. But I tell you what, that's what I think racists want us to do is focus on one incident or one individual and feel really good because we think we're better than them because we can point out what they've done wrong. But let's get serious about the system, let's get serious about accountability and let's together make sure that people know that it is the basis of our expectation and not just when it's the worst incident but at every incident. Totally, that leads me to my question. Oh, yes, give her a clap. Absolutely, I agree. Now, Bruce, this leads me to my next question to you. People often think racism is loud and abusive, like what we've just heard um, about with Adam, but it can be that quite subtle and systemic racism that Tanya's talking about. With your current work at Adelaide Leadership in mind, what can people in positions of leadership do to implement real change in the fight against racism in sport and racism in society, full stop? I think you've got to walk the talk at the end of the day. I mean, it's very easy to talk and to say all the right things and to have the vision statements and to have the mission statements and, you know, to, to play in an Aboriginal-designed Guernsey once a year and all that tokenistic, all those platitudes. Like, I mean, organisations do it to feel good about themselves, leaders do it to feel good about themselves, organisations do it to try and attract the best talent because socially that's the right thing to do. But, you know, it's like, it's like a house full of termites. It could look great from the outside and then you try to go up this wooden steps and there's stepping holes in it because there's actually no substance to, to, to what's, what's been said. Um, so I think you need to call things out. Like, I didn't know Adam Goods, it was 17 weeks. So that, that's just astounding to me. I remember when it was happening. And I remember at the start even thinking like, yeah, well, people boo Cristiano Ronaldo and it's just a bit of a thing. And, but it didn't take that long, not 17 weeks, you know, maybe a couple of weeks. And you're like, hold on a second. And nothing to do between the Swans and West Coast Eagles and this kind of Perth and everyone, everyone's born him now, you know? So those organisations, and I remember being seriously frustrated at the, at, at the time because those organisations, like there are powerful people there, there are, and they could have shut it down within 30 minute meeting, guys, this is what we're gonna do, this is how we're gonna shut it down, and let's just go shut it down because we run the media in this country. It's pretty simple. But they didn't do it for all the mission statements and vision statements and all the Aboriginal communities that they, that they have uh, uh, designed for them. And, you know, that stuff really frustrates me. And I think if you want to be a leader, then you have to be able to recognise when there's something of substance and when you're just saying it to be on trend and, 
you have to do it because everyone else is doing it, but you're not really believing in what you're doing. So leadership is, is and it's a bit of a buzzword, but it's a very important role. And if you want to be a leader, then you, you, you can't afford to follow in, in anything, whether it be racism, whether it be, you know, um, equal pay, whether it be um, elevating women in your organisation, whether it be supporting people with disabilities, whether it be treating everyone uh, as human beings, you, you, you can't shy away from something and then concentrate on something else. You need to be, a, a, a leader does it all, else, else, else you, you, you're failing. So, look, I think um, in leadership, what would seriously help is having more Indigenous people involved because th some of these people, they're not bad people, you know that? They're, they're, they're actually not trying to harm us. They're, they're not bad people, but they literally have no visibility. I mean, you got stereotypes about St Peter's College, for example. Um, I, I was shocked about that, that story Gavin uh, told me. I've got young kids, six and four. And I'm thinking, oh, if, that, if that happened to my side, I would not be very calm. Um, but, you know, some of these institutions, and I'm generalising now, but some of these institutions, you know, they, they, they are very sheltered. They are super sheltered. I've lived all over the world. My family lives all over the world. I've been able to see all different perspectives and angles and live with different people and cultures and religions. And so I'm lucky in the sense that I can understand why people arrive to the decisions uh, or to the thought processes that they have. Because I've got that global experience. But that kid from St Peter's, I don't know him. I don't know many people from there. But it's got a reputation, that school. And in every state, there's those schools with those reputations, and you hear a lot about them in Sydney from, from that, that woman in the eastern suburbs that was talking about the sexual abuse and the rape that was happening in schools. And, you know, you've got principals and, and these people interviewing these kids. And, you know, I was listening to the, to the radio a couple, of, a couple of months ago now, and I was gobsmacked when, you know, the principal was like, well, why? we interviewed this kid and we said, why didn't you stop when the girl said to stop and when she was crying? Oh, yeah, girls always cry and they always, you know. Because they're that sheltered, some of these societies, you know, and it's, the, the, the system is such that a lot of people from those sort of backgrounds do end up in positions of significant influence. And it's not that they're bad, it's just that they lack perspective. And it's the lack of perspective that leads to poor decision making. And yes, they can have the title, and yes, they can be a leader in inverted commas. But when you get a mass congregation of that culture, then you get Adam Goods being booed for 17 freaking weeks. It's just ridiculous, you know? And I think if, if, you, if you want to be a leader in, in summation, if you want to be a leader, if you want to be uh, uh, really, you know, the, 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 the person that's the CEO or the coach or the football director or the recruiter who's in charge of, of you know, recruiting the, the players, 
then, then you have to be able to walk the talk. You have to, but to be able to do that, you've got to know what right and, and wrong is. So that's where education is actually the most powerful tool. Because instead of just reading about the rainbow serpent and all this sort of stuff in, in school, actually learn about what, what, what actually happened. And it's not good, it's not pleasant. And it's embarrassing and it's shameful and all the rest, but teach the, teach the students about it. Because then they grow up with a realization of, yep, I know why there's a gap. Because I tell you now, if Australia was full of white people and black people came and took the white kids away from, from their family, there'd be a gap on that side too. You know, there, there, there's some really significant trauma that's happened that's created this gap. Um, and, and if you want to be a leader, you need to have the, the context knowledge and the understanding of what's happened in the past to, to get the understanding of where you are today and how to not let that or anything like that uh, uh, sort of foster or fester in your organisation. Bruce, you've made my day with that answer. Let me tell you. Now, it's so true. Education is absolutely the answer. Taryn, what kind of education would you like to see in the space of sport that would filter down to the umpires we're talking about today, to the players, to the people who are doing the mediation? What would you like to see educational-wise? I think that the um, education has to be led by the players. Um, what what uh, can't, what they when I say led by the players, obviously it's the organisation's response. I, I'm thinking, sorry, I'm thinking from a club perspective, um, but you know it is about the history and. Um, how do we, how, going to Bruce's point, how, how do we teach the history to, um, so that to undo, not undo, but so that the historical wrongs do not continue into the past um, and that people can, um, you know, that it's our children's children are not playing sport and having to have these same experiences because that, if we're having to have these conversations as grannies, uh, that'll be bloody terrible. Um, mm. And I think it's... A, <laughs> yeah, and I think it has to happen at, at, at all levels. And just building on your point, Bruce, I was just thinking thinking about, um, you know, leaders and their roles and, and you know, the Damien Monkhurst, like, I'm, I find his statement where, with, with um, Michael Long and he, you know, he, he's, uh, is he famously or infamously known now as, you know, he, he's gone on this very public journey um, with Michael Long, and he's now he's you know he he thought speaking to Aboriginal players and saying what he used to say as a part of his football game was normal, but now he very publicly says, "I just I feel embarrassed. I don't. Mm. I would never do that." 
That is a part of the leadership and the education that's really important now, and it's it's though, you know, it's that cha the change and that educate. Like we need the Damians to be, you know, it's not just the the legislation that says this type of education, but how do we bring um, everyone along, the people who, mm. you know who are entrenched in certain types of behaviours, I think, how do, we get, how do we get to them and just think differently about how we approach that? Now, Paulie, the work that you've done in Port Adelaide and the Aboriginal programs and now AFL House, you have certainly seen some positive changes. Talk about the immediate and the long-term effects you see in communities through the programs and how they benefit everyone. Yeah, I was probably just going to add to Taryn's point about um, often when we see sponsors coming, approaching us, whether I was whether it was at Port Adelaide or at the AFL, a lot of the common questions is, um, can you take our executives on, an, on a journey? And I, I love that stuff. I love, I think one of the best ways to educate us, and Gavin and I have done this for many years, is take, mm -hmm. take non-Aboriginal people with us to the APY lands and spend a week um, even tasting Gavin's cooking, which isn't too bad, actually. You know you love it. <laughs> <laughs> He's always asked me to cook on those trips. <laughs> um, you don't let anyone else cook, that's the problem. Um, but uh, we, we've always found that incredibly powerful, um, is taking people away for six, seven days. Um, and it doesn't necessarily need to be remote, but in our, in our case, in our experiences, the remote setting stuff just seem, seems to open up people's minds and eyes to, to who we are as people. And I think there's a big role that Aboriginal people have to play as well to be open to non-Aboriginal non people. And I think we've been very a very closed culture because of the past policies and because of the past um, behaviours towards us. Um, and I do think there's a shift in mindset compared to myself and my mother. Um, I, I, I can 100% I can understand why mum um, can be ang can 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 I say angry? She's not here. I, I, I'll, I'll say I'll, I'll say she, she she can snap right really quickly, and I, I and I get it. I, I get you know being born at a mission, and those sort of challenges would be quite challenging. And I can understand where mum comes from, and I think um, the next generation has changed. Um, and if I think about my 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 children's upbringing and their education. Um, they are doing a lot more stuff around Aboriginal culture in our schools. Um, and that's the thing. I think when I came through here in Adelaide High, I got taught nothing. You know, they didn't talk about it. And there's a reluctance from our teachers because they don't want to say the wrong thing. But <clears throat> the reality is we teach all kinds of subjects, biology, physics, whatever. Everyone's going to get it wrong. Let's just teach it. And it's even more power in, in, in non-Aboriginal people talking about Aboriginal people and culture. And, and, and we always talk about the truth-telling part of our history. Um, and so one minute we, we like to highlight and celebrate the Anzacs and the wars, and you know we celebrate and we have a minute silence on the 11th of November. But we don't, we don't want to talk about the frontier wars or what happened over at Elliston and here, you know, genocide and what happened down in Tasmania. You know, we, don't, we don't want to do it because it's ugly and it makes people uncomfortable. But we always talk about the truth-telling part of our real history, Australian history, um, actually is going to put, take us forward. It's actually going to let us um, heal as a country and move forward. And, and 
uh, Tanya mentioned the word I think we use as Aboriginal people all the time is how do we do this together? And we'll always talk about how do we do this. We don't, we don't want to take anything away. We don't, we don't want your house. We don't want your job. We just want to do this country together. And, um, and I think the power of that is about how do we do that. And you know, I've got John Carty sitting here down here as a non-Aboriginal man working in an Indigenous space with the museum and does fantastic work. And I, I just love the way that, John, you go about your business and how you bring us together. And um, we need more people like you, brother. So thank you. Beautiful. Now, Gavin, one quick thing before we do go to questions. What's one thing in your mind that you think people can do in the audience that are listening to make a difference to end racism in sport? To end racism, did you say? To end, well, not to end, to be, to essentially, I wish we could end racism, but to help <laughs> and stop racism in sport so that there are systems to protect. What's one thing that people in the audience can do moving forward? Are there two things? No. <laughs> yeah, you can go two. I think... Right. Um, Just because you're on Survivor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look out. Um, I think because we all have our own different, you know, social networks and come from different parts of Adelaide or different parts of South Australia or Australia, I think just if you're involved in... I mean, somewhere along the line, you you're going to either be involved with a football club, a netball club, softball club, basketball club, you know, soccer club, some, some sort of a cards club, whatever club it is, or whatever, you know, group it is. I think always have an ear. Always have an ear. If you hear something, just to go up and have a polite conversation with that person to try and get them to understand that that, that was actually wrong. Because I'm sure you'll come across it from time to time. You know, so always have an ear and don't be scared to have a meaningful conversation with that person. I think that's really powerful. Beautiful. I love that. And that's a perfect way to end. Thank you all so much. We are now going to go to questions. So if somebody has a question they would like to ask this amazing panel, who, by the way, you've all been brilliant, and thank you so much for your generosity. If you've got a question you'd like to ask, you can make your way to the microphone at the centre, I believe, the end of the pathway, and you can ask them a question. Sean, you can't say anything. No, don't allow that man there. Don't, don't that, the that fellow on the left. Why? <laughs> Walking over, no. Don't oh let him. <laughs> I'm in, I'm in um, Victoria. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's, it's all right. Um, I was just here because I wanted to know if a Gavin won um, the competition or not. Survivor. So I was just coming in there to see yeah, if I could well. get a bit of inside intel so I could head down the lucky shop and lay a lazy 20 on it. But yeah, anyway. well, you never know you're in the big smoke. No. So you just have, just have to watch it and wait no, and see. Just joking, just joking. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm from Perth and I, um, when I first came to Adelaide, it was in the height of summer. It was a 45 degree day and I thought I was going to die. Um, and considering, you know, we normally get the doctor in Frio, so it's always pretty good. But yeah, it was a terrible, terribly hot day. So I got up very early in the morning. I had a little bit of a hangover because the beer here is very good. But anyway, that's another um, <laughs> discussion for another time. And I went for a big walk around the sort of parklands here. And you got like the, the golf course over there and you got Adelaide Oval and then you had the tennis thing next to it, yeah? They're all green. Everything else was dead. They're bastions of old white fellas 
um, recreations and sport, tennis and cricket and, you know, golf. And I just thought, how does that work? Everyone else is, is you know, needing, you know, water. Gardens are dying all over Adelaide. And you've got these three areas which are completely green and pristine. What gives? So my question is, is how do you deal with the issues of institutionalised matters? Because they're the big, that's the big meat and potatoes. Stuff. I agree, you know, doing the, you know, the rollout, the NAIDOC and this one and that one, that's wonderful, but it's, does, it's not actually breaking those things down. So, so, so to all of you, because you're all dealing with these things from an institutional point of view, how do you deal with those things and keep sane? Look, I think it's hard. I think it's hard. I know what you're saying. And, you know, I've had a very interesting life to date where I'm not an Indigenous person, but I'm obviously black, um, which I think is great. And, you know, unfortunately, another part of this power construct, black is always associated with really negative things. I'm really conscious of that. So I've got a six and a four-year-old, and when they were about three and one, especially my three-year-old, he was scared of the dark and all this sort of stuff, and I thought, you know, let me try this one. And I'm like, why, why are you scared of the dark? You know? Only good things happen in the dark. When it's black, there's mm. only good things. When does Santa come? Nighttime. When does the Easter Bunny come? Nighttime. <laughs> <laughs> when does the Tooth Fairy come? Nighttime. Everything good happens in the dark. And all of a sudden, his favourite colour, guess what it is now? It's black. Because it's just the construct of society. And, and, you know, the conqueror always creates the history, right? They always write the history. Well, this is actually what happened. Anzac Day, da, 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 da. This is the first I'm hearing about some of these genocides. and mate, Sitting here right now is the first I've, I've, I've heard of it. You know, and, and it's, it goes to your point. There's a nice plush green golf course. I can tell you, I grew up as a kid, normal, middle, you know, mi what is it, middle sort of tier. We're not wealthy, we're not poor. My dad was a professor. We were, we were fine. But we lived on the North Shore in Sydney, and I can tell you, I did not know mm -hmm. another black family between Milsons Point, Mossman Manley, and Hornsby, the whole North Shore. And I had two brothers. We all went to school and between the three of us, didn't know another black, like, not one. And that's not even an exaggeration. So, you, and then you start to see how society has been built and how people of influence start to have a say and influence and money gets put in certain places where and then you go to the parklands and you've got all these indigenous people. They, they <laughs> I was at Baptist Care two days ago. Heaps of indigenous people there. Heaps. They don't have food. They don't have that. You go two kilometres north, in North Adelaide, you've got the complete opposite uh, uh, side of the world. So it is difficult to deal with. I, I do it in a sense that I, I get stopped on the street frequently from people of, of colour. So keep doing what you're doing, we're so proud of you. You know, parents say, you know, 
I always show my kids when you're on TV and you're on doing the press conference or you're doing the interview. And I don't find that a burden, but I really take that as a responsibility on my shoulders. Everything I do, I always make sure it's on the front page of the New York Times, I'd still be proud of what I've done. And that's how I live my life. It's like a little bit of extra responsibility I take because I think then that has flow-on effects. For me, it was Barack Obama. It was 2008, I was living in Turkey, and I watched his inauguration, and I was like, man, I remember being in high school, listening to that Tupac song, Changes. <laughs> like, shit's changing. <laughs> like, that for me was like earth-shattering moment. I'm like, I cannot believe, I, I could not believe it. We were born, me and my brothers were born in the States. I was like, I can just not believe this black president. Like, this is the best thing in the world. And it's that, it's, it's, it's that what you need that will start to shine the light in the dark corners and the dark spots where all of a sudden you can start to make a change because it is instant. <laughs> I go to dinners all the time with the high society these days. I'm always the only black guy there. I, I swear to God. I'm always the only black person in the room. Always. I, I, I cannot remember the last time I was at a big gala ball or a big gala dinner in Adelaide and there was another black person. I'm like, if you put a pen prick on the big white, sorry, on the big white cloth of a table, that's me. Every day. I feel comfortable in my own skin and I'm fine. And I, uh, but it's just disappointing that society is built in a way well, you know, yeah. it's just the way it is. So I know what you're saying, but I think the only thing we can do is, you know, Gavin can be a legendary footy player. You know, I, I can do what I do. Tanya can do what she does. You know, it's, it's only between us being role models, really. I think it's, I think it's a real privilege. Mm -hmm. And then you start to climb the ladder and then you can start to have an, an influence. Absolutely agree, 100%. We'll go to another question now. I imagine that would have been the answer for many of you, but we will, we're running out of time, so I'd like to get another question. Yeah, I'll, I'll try and be quick. Firstly, um, just on behalf of everyone, thanks to each of you for what you brought to that stage tonight. It was really emotional for me, and I think probably for everyone in this room, and really raw and really honest. I wanted to ask any of you who wishes to reflect on it, on this, we often separate out sport and culture, and we sort of try and say, well, sport's happening here and this is Australia, and that's just a lie. Like, sport is just an arena in which our society is made visible to us, for better or for worse. And we load a lot onto sport in Australia for meaning, um, and lots of good things come from that, which is what the idea of this session, in a way, is teasing apart this idea of what is sport in our culture and how does it reflect the racism in Australia. But without putting the burden of education <laughs> that we should be doing in our schools and our universities onto sport, it seems like some of the big turning points in our society have come through moments on the sporting field. And we need to accept that sport has this incredible role in shaping our culture. And I wondered if any of you wanted to reflect on how we can use the platform of, of sport, of football, um, to continue to influence and shift and improve and change 
uh, and address racism in Australia. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, when I was growing up, I used to think Australia was a land of sport. My dad watched mm. every sport going and, you know, what didn't matter what it was. It was just like, what's going on today? Oh, there'd be some sport <laughs> that we can watch. Um, I think... I think... We, we need to embrace the fact that our country is, is woven together with a strong sporting lens. No point fighting it. I think we need to integrate it more with other cultural activities. Um, I used to be on the board of Bangara Dance Theatre and one of my dreams, I think I might have put it in one of my performance management things with Gil one year, really want us to do something with Bangara at some point. Now, you know, maybe we will, maybe we won't, probably won't, but look, it doesn't mean I won't try. I, th I think we do have to have a better understanding of the vehicle that sport is, so that those of us who want to leverage the platform to get these other messages out can. Certainly the reason that I said yes to going to work at the AFL one in every 24 Australians is a paid member of an Australian rules football club. One in 24. That's ridiculous. And the thing is, it keeps going up. And that's even through COVID, where we didn't have a product for two months. People, you know, I believe that people come to, the, to sport and in our code, they come to the footy because they feel they belong. It's a universal need of all people is to belong. We all want to know that we belong. And if you can belong in a way that means that people learn to behave better, then you're not gonna get a better vehicle. You're just not gonna get a better vehicle. People will go to the footy before they'll go to the see an Indigenous contemporary dance company or before they'll go to the opera, there's a, there's a, or, the, or the ballet. One of the things about sport is it doesn't harness class in the same way that a lot of other cultural institutions do. You don't have to be academically gifted to enjoy a footy game. But I know the first time someone took me to the opera house to see an orchestra I just sat there terrified that I was going to clap at the wrong time because someone said, don't clap between movements. I didn't know what the movement was. What are you talking about? There's no dancing going on. Um, and, and so you go through experiences like that and you do realise. You go the footy and, and that's why the racism hurts because it should be somewhere we can go where we belong. And it's one of the reasons that I love footy, because growing up, it's the only time I saw black fellas cheered for. And when I look at the indigenous talent or black talent in any sport, I feel smug. Because for a few minutes, I know, see, you all think we're not good enough in every other element of, of society 
but that just proves we're not just good enough, we're better. And we know, the research shows us, that young people take so much out of it. How many blackfellas are going to start playing tennis after Ash Barty just won Wimbledon? We know they're going to get an uplift. They will, in participation. Is tennis ready for that? To be able to harness that and keep those people in? I don't know. But I do think that the culture of sport is powerful beyond measure. And that's why we need more of us in the administration, in the broadcasting, so and at decision-making levels. So it's not just about a moment and a sporting career, but it actually, you see the culture change through the participation of people who are not from the one class, from the one dominant culture. It's absolutely critical because it won't change on its own because people, at the, at the end of the day, this is about power and it's about some people having power and some of us never having it. And people don't typically share power or give it up. And so you have to be in the room and you've got to have a seat at the table. And I think, you know, there's too much pressure on the athletes to be the vehicle for that. They want to be the best at what they do, but then we want them to be the biggest advocate when they do get to the top of their game. They're under extraordinary pressure, and we're seeing mental health problems all the time. You know, on the way here, I was reading about Liz Cambage, who's pulled out of the Olympics because of an anxiety problem. And she's, you know, how long has she been training for that? Um, so I think. We need to harness it as a cultural strength, but we need to expect more of it. And can I, yeah, just yeah, well said, Tanya. Um, it just goes to show how important football has been um, in regards, I mean, it's, it is the great leveller, it is. It's how my mum's brothers, who are wonderful Indigenous footballers over in the Air Peninsula, <coughs> they got respect by playing football in the community that they wouldn't have got otherwise. I mean, where would we be without football? Seriously, like, would, without having that as a platform that Indigenous people can have a voice? Like, it just be, it would be frightening if football didn't exist. It'd be unbelievable. Where, do, where, do we, where would we go as a society? Where would we start? It's just, it would be mind-blowing how um, the lack of progress that would would have, would, be, would, have hap would happen without footy. So for me, um, seeing yeah, in a way, growing up, I saw football as an out. I saw it growing up in Salisbury with nothing. I remember going to school with footy with with, with sneakers, right? So we would come from. I mean, Paulie would know this. A lot of Aboriginal people would know this. Like. I'd have one pair of shoes they would wear out pretty quick because I was a pretty athletic sort of guy and we didn't have money to, you know, replace shoes too often. They'd usually be hand-me-downs or the neighbours' <laughs> shoes. And I remember one, one time I had to go to school with footy boots. <laughs> Imagine that. And all these kids were looking at me. I was so embarrassed. Like, I had to walk to school with these footy boots. And you know what, the irony of, of we didn't have any grass at our school. It was all bitumen, so the, the old stops <laughs> wore down quite quick. You know, and 
when I realised that, hey, football could be something for me, um, I just sort of zeroed in on it and and went for it and started to go to all the training sessions and not get get caught up in in the opportunities that were around me growing up with my cousins and 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 seeing what you know they were getting up to because that was just the way it was. So you know, footy saved me, and you know, without football. I owe a lot to football. I owe a lot to the Essendon Football Club. I owe a lot to the Port Adelaide Footy Club, because without footy, I'd be, I'd be lost. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely the great leveller getting on that footy field and being able to earn respect. Those footy boots would be worth real money now, you know. Damn, I should have kept them. <laughs> can I just can I just quickly say that I agree. Like football is the church of the people, right? And. Um, you know, and what what we do know now, you know, from the experiences from Nikki Wimmer, from Adam Goods, from you guys, is that we know more now, right? We demand more, and that's what our current players um, are, are kind of, you know, putting on their Instagram accounts. And I think, and that's where I think the game will create the greatest change and have the greatest impact because, you know, I don't think a man like Adam Goods will stand, another player like Adam Goods will stand alone and because we know more and um, we demand, demand more and that is the power of the, the, the church of, of football. So that, that would be my response to your question. Nice. That, nice one. There isn't an Aboriginal person around that hasn't been raised to leave the world in a better place than what they found it and to make sure that the next generation is looked after. And, and you can say that we've certainly seen that through sport and the people that have played in, in um, different sports and the space that they've had people and what they've done um, moving forward. So thank you so much to all of you for your wisdom and sharing your stories. I think we could listen to them all night. I'm sure there are other people there that have questions for you as well, um, but our time has come to an end. And enjoy Illuminate our I'm so jealous that I can't be there and I hope that I'll get to next year. Thank you to all of you. Thank you, Bruce, Paulie, Gavin, Tanya and Taryn. It has been so wonderful. Um, take care. Thank you also to the amazing audience that came and to everybody on Zoom who's listened in tonight. Take care and can we please give them all a final round of applause and good night. <laughs>